0: A Trans Colorado flight is on its way to Cortez, Colorado with a stop in Durango. What caused this flight to crash miles from the runway? Content warning for this episode Substance Misuse. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
2: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hi. Hello. 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 How's it going? I I don't know. How is it going?
1: (laughs) I don't know. It's snowing outside.
2: It is snowing
0: outside here in Colorado. Probably Uh, in several other places, too. We are recording this on January 9th. We are actively following the story of the Indonesian plane that crashed.
1: Today.
2: And we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, in the post-episode,
0: if you want to hear more about that. Yes, we try not to Check speculate out.
1: too much or anything like that.
0: But we'll discuss, for those of you who don't follow such news as actively as we do. Yes. Because it is... people send us stuff.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it what? is unfortunate. It is sad news. It is too bad. And on that note, we really don't like to speculate about what happened. Because really, honestly, we have zero answers. No
0: one has any. We know idea.
1: nothing. Yeah. Except that the airplane crashed in the water.
2: So if you want to hear more about that, you can go visit the Patreon. Thank you, by the way, to our two new patrons. Oh, yeah. So hi to Megan, who has been listening for a while, because you were one of our first people to recommend an episode to us, and Ariel, who became a patron, I believe, this past week. Yes. So thank you so much. We very much like that you like us enough to support us, (laughs) and that you can, so thank you very, very much. Yeah, it's awesome. And with that, what are we covering today, Nick?
1: So today we're covering a local one. Literally. Yes, we are covering Trans-Colorado flight 2286. This was actually a flight in Colorado.
2: That crashed. That crashed.
0: In Colorado. Yes. Thank you to Ben Jackson for recommending this crash.
2: Yeah, thanks. We actually really wanted to do this for a
0: while. I'm glad that
2: it came up as a recommendation. And it's
0: an anniversary. This is coming out on January 19th wow yeah we didn't even plan that that just happened
2: that's great that's perfect sweet 30
1: okay. 33 30 what am i mathing
2: 30 years no wait <laughs> <laughs> math is when hard. did it when did it 18,
1: 88 88 1988
2: so 32 33 years
1: 33 years that's what i thought
2: see uh, i can do proper math good job yeah yep. see
1: this happened on January 19th of 1988, so yes, 33 years ago. This was a Fairchild Metro 3. I'm not even going to get into all the many names that this airplane has.
2: Hashtag Lawn Dart.
1: Lawn Dart. <laughs> that's a terrible name for this airplane, but that's how they were known.
2: That's, how, that's what we call them.
1: Yeah, they're still around. They're very active at the airport that I work at, and they are old as dirt. But they were a twin turboprop 19-seat airplane. The 19-seat class of airplane is a really weird class of airplane that's very specific because they're all 19-seat rather than some even number. <laughs> and that's because they all have a row of three at the back. The flight that we'll be covering is from Denver to Cortez via a stop in Durango, Colorado.
2: Cortez, so, Colorado? Yep. I don't, I don't even know where that is. It's really
1: close to Durango, actually. Oh. <laughs> the captain for our flight was Steven Silver. He was 36 years old. He had 4184 hours total at the time of which 3028 hours were on the type on the metro. The first officer for the flight was Ralph Harvey. He was 42 years old, so he was older. He had 8500 hours total, so more hours, but he only had 305 hours on the type, so he oh, was pretty new so to the type.
2: He was new to the airplane.
1: Yes. The flight crew reported for duty at 12:30 p.m., so a little afternoon and at KDEN or Stapleton International Airport.
2: Yeah, because this was before DIA.
1: Yes, this was before DIA. So this was at Stapleton, the old airport here in Denver, to the operations facility of Rocky Mountain Airways. Okay, let's clarify some things. This gets really complicated. The flight number was for Trans-Colorado Flight 2286, which was operating for Rocky Mountain Airways. So, the owner of the airplane and the employer of the flight crew was TransColorado. They owned the airplane, had the flight crew, provided this to Rocky Mountain Airways, who was operating the flight on behalf of Continental Express, who sold the tickets. And all of this is owned by Continental as a whole.
2: Wow, that's really complicated.
1: Yes. So, four companies involved. The only one that actually owns everything is Continental. But TransColorado was the owner of the airplane and the pilots. The flight crew. They were yeah. way down at the lowest level. They were operating for Rocky Mountain, who was operating for Continental Express, who sold the tickets, who was operating on behalf of Continental. Great. Yes.
2: If you weren't confused before,
1: you're already very confused. <laughs> it's one of those situations. So they're, they're a really small commuter carrier, in other words. The crew was scheduled on a full afternoon slash evening of flying in November 6-8 Tango Charlie, is our airplane. This was the... So the first flight for them was from Denver to Riverton, Wyoming, and then from Riverton, Wyoming to Cheyenne, then back to Denver, before they would then go on to Durango, our flight we're talking about. The first flight of the day was scheduled to depart at 1.15 p.m., but didn't depart until 2.25 p.m., due to weather delays at Denver. And the late arrival of the plane from with another crew into denver because of the weather so these things culminated the airplane left an hour and 10 minutes late the crew flew to riverton and cheyenne without issue they then returned to denver having made up some time arriving at 5:57 p.m only 42 minutes late the flight to durango was scheduled to depart at 5:40 p.m which obviously wasn't going to happen since they already landed in denver after that And they were planned to fly for 72 minutes down to Durango. The planned cruising altitude was 22,000 feet, with Cortez as the alternate airport. Handy, since that's where they were going next anyways.
2: Yeah, (laughs) so in case of really bad weather, for whatever reason. Yes. Which, this is January in Colorado. Snow.
0: Normally. (laughs) It's snowing today. It is. In January.
1: In Colorado. What do you
0: know? Sometimes it's hit or miss. It is. But...
1: Our Januaries are actually usually pretty mild, Yeah, but
2: But not necessarily in the mountains. Down down south where this is, though, they get a lot more snow than we do. do. Just like how out west gets a lot more snow than we do. Oh, yeah. Where we live specifically. So it's probably going to be relatively snowy. Yes. Turns out. Turns out. (laughs) Yep.
1: The flight was scheduled with 15 passengers and two crew operating for Continental Express. The first officer was to be the pilot flying and the captain was to be the pilot monitoring. The flight actually departed at 6.20 p.m., 49 minutes behind schedule, and climbed straight to its assigned cruising altitude of 23,000 feet. The flight plan was for 22,000, but they were assigned 23,000 by air traffic control. This happens sometimes, but it's not common because they're flying westbound. When you're flying westbound, you generally fly in the even altitudes, and when you're flying eastbound, you fly in the odds. So, to be assigned 23,000 feet is a little weird, but not totally weird. If if there was conflicting traffic that was crossing them at some point, to have that extra 1,000 feet, okay. I get it.
0: Side question. What if you're flying directly dead north or dead south?
1: Generally, you don't.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> do you ever
2: fly just directly north or south? I mean, like, for instance, if you were going to Texas from Colorado,
0: mm-hmm. usually you'd probably go mostly south.
1: It's well, south southeast
0: like if you were going from denver to like albuquerque or santa fe which is also on i-25
1: yes but they are still slightly west if it is one degree west okay you fly evens
2: okay so it's rarely ever that you're straight up and down yeah which kind of makes sense because that's kind of dangerous with like crossing traffic east and west you know
1: yes at six fifty three p.m in nine seconds the flight reported to the Denver Air Route Traffic Control Center that they were level at flight level two three zero, or twenty three thousand feet. The air traffic controller acknowledged and reported the weather at Durango, which had been reported as, quote, indefinite ceiling eight hundred. So this is a little vague. The next line says sky obscure.
2: So they don't know where the ceiling is? They know the ceiling the
1: they know the ceiling is at eight hundred feet. What they don't know is if that's broken, overcast, or basically what condition the the clouds are. So they don't know how much you can see through that ceiling. Visibility one nautical mile. Light snow and fog.
2: Oh, look. Snow. What do you know? (laughs) Fog? We don't get fog very often here, Mm -mm. I have to say. So having it being foggy and it's snowing. Yeah. A little odd. It is odd. It happens every once in a while, but it doesn't happen very often here. Yeah. And it's really weird. Especially if you ever drive through it, you're like, what is happening? Exactly. (laughs) I can't see anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At 7 p.m. and 40 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the flight if they would, quote, rather shoot the ILS or uh, will the uh, DME approach to runway 20 be uh, sufficient?
2: Uh, I don't know. Uh, Is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. All those us were intentional. (laughs) They really were. So what this means is that the, the air traffic controller is asking him if they wanted to shoot the ILS or the instrument landing system approach, which was for runway two, which is coming from the south side, actually, or from the, yeah, from the...
0: So going south to north.
1: South to north. And, or if they wanted to continue on a DME approach, a VOR DME approach. So this uses the very high frequency omnidirectional system and, or omnidirectional range system. And the distance measuring equipment.
0: Remember that outdated equipment we were talking about for the New York collision?
1: They still use that, it turns out. But also it's just weird. But this approach uses both of those things, a piece on the ground and the DME, to figure out a good approach path. And this is a a, a form of instrument approach. But this one was usable for runway two zero. But for runway two zero there's only that approach. No ILS. The ILS is far more accurate.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, if I had to choose between the two, I'd pick the ILS, not the VORDME right. approach. Because of what is going on with the weather, right? right. It's foggy, it's snowy.
1: Right. And winds were actually reported as being calm at the airport, so they could use either, because winds yep. are no factor.
2: I'm
0: just saying, if I was the pilot, I'd probably pick the ILS.
1: But they're coming from the north. In runway 20 is almost straight in.
0: For one, two, they're running late.
2: Well, sometimes safety's more important than getting there on time. We'll get to
0: that. You know, they might be thinking that now.
1: (laughs) The captain responded that he would continue with the DME approach for runway 20. So they were going to do the straight in for the runway that they had right in front of them. The air traffic controller then told the flight that they could proceed direct to the Durango VOR 023 radial... Eleven mile fix.
2: So the radial that they have to use the dial, right? That's what they. Yes. Yeah, so
1: yes. Yeah, so they're. T- he's telling them them to fly to where the zero two three radial protrudes from the Durango VOR to the eleven mile fix. So eleven miles from the VOR on the two three radial.
2: If you need to know more about VORs, you should check out the New York collision. Uh, That we did a few weeks ago because we did an explanation on VORs and how radials work and all that stuff.
1: And you can look this up, too. There's plenty of information about how these work. And, yes, it is plenty confusing.
0: So the runway that they are trying to land on is runway 20. The inverse of that is runway 02. It's actually on heading 023 or 203. So by tuning into that radial, it lines them up perfectly with the runway.
1: Yeah. Basically, exactly. Yeah. The captain acknowledged this transmission from the air traffic controller. Then the Rocky Mountain Airway Station agent at Durango heard from the captain at 7.05 p.m. And the captain told her that they were 25 miles out. They were full on water. This was water for the water-injected engine. Which is really weird, because... Typically, turbine engines are not water-injected. This was for performance on takeoff, actually. It made the engine performance better. And that they would be landing with 1,400 pounds of fuel, so they would not need any more fuel. They could make it to Cortez, no problem.
0: Which is good, because that was their alternate. But also, to be clear, Durango does not have its own traffic control.
1: Nope. So the station agent was giving them information.
0: But they Um, were still being controlled by Denver ARTCC.
1: Right, the Air Route Traffic Control Center. Because they cover a very, very large blanket of the country. And they, because they cover the area of Durango, they help them route through and get down to the airport, basically. The station agent then gave the crew the current weather at Durango. Current weather was still winds, calm, light snow. Foggy. Foggy. Cold. Around that time, the flight crew informed the passengers that they were 65 miles from Durango and that they would be landing in 20 minutes. And a short while later, they informed the passengers that they would be beginning their initial descent soon and requested that they buckle up, take their seats, snap the buckles. Wouldn't really stand up in this airplane. They're not tall. It's really small. It's also a shortish flight. 7.03 p.m. and 11 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend at the pilot's discretion to 16,000 feet. The captain acknowledged this. They then left flight level 230 for 16,000 feet. At 7.10pm and 19 seconds, the air traffic controller then cleared the flight to descend to 15,000 feet, and the captain acknowledged. So, more steps down. Three minutes and 28 seconds later, the air traffic controller told the flight to cross the Durango 023 radial at the 11 mile fix at or above 14,000 feet, and then cleared them to the VOR DME approach to Durango. So... This is, they would cross that 11-mile fix. They'd be straight in for the runway at that point. And then they would use their DME equipment, or distance measuring equipment. Sorry, it's kind of redundant. But distance measuring equipment to follow the VOR track basically straight down to the airport.
0: And there's a published profile. So when you're flying towards an airport, you have what's called a plate for the airport, which is like all of your approach and takeoff instructions and on it is the published profile descent profile down onto this runway
1: yeah yep so they're called plates they're called approach plates so you have an approach plate that's literally part of the charting for your route and you have that approach plate tells you exactly how to perform that procedure to approach into the airport the captain did not immediately respond and the air traffic controller had to repeat this request the captain then replied that they were quote down to 14 and were cleared for the approach. So they were down to 14,000 feet already, and they were cleared for the the approach. The flaps were then extended and the landing gear was dropped. At 7.16 p.m. and 15 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that radar coverage had terminated, and six six seconds later, the captain responded, 2286 Wilco. This was the last time that the flight would be heard from by air traffic control. Now,
2: so they couldn't see them on radar.
1: Yes, this is normal, because they're air route traffic control. They don't have radar for the airport. They can't see past the mountains. So eventually, they drop below a certain altitude. They're going to lose radar contact with them. Normally, the radar at the airport would then pick them up, but because Durango isn't wasn't a controlled airport, had they had no way of actually like radar contact control of this this airplane. So he was just telling them, look, I don't have your full radar information anymore. You're basically on your own for the rest of the approach. It's totally normal. Nothing abnormal about that at all.
0: And for reference, since we said that they lose signal behind the mountains, Denver ARTCC is in Longmont. Yep. Still is. Yep. So.
1: And when he said, "Quote two two eight six Wilco," what he said, what he's saying is, "Will comply." It's it's actually just a shortened term that's really an acknowledgement, a shortened acknowledgement, in aviation. So basically, he was saying he acknowledges. They're off the radar.
2: They can't be seen by radar.
1: Right. The flight passed by Pagosa Springs in Bayfield, Colorado. The passengers could see houses and lights on the ground outside the windows. The airplane then leveled off briefly before it suddenly hit hard, became airborne again, and abruptly pitched up, and engine power increased rapidly. The plane then rolled several times laterally before it hit the ground and slid to a stop five miles short of the airport in the middle Ah. of a field.
2: And so it goes.
1: The airplane broke apart and was extremely severely damaged. When they had that initial hit, they hit terrain. They lost part of the left wing. The airplane then careened out of control and broke into several pieces once it hit the ground again. This led to a stop in the snow. Several of the passengers woke up relatively quickly and some were not badly injured. They managed to help some of the other passengers find their way out of the fuselage, and they quickly realized that they were in the middle of nowhere.
2: In the snow.
1: In the snow. In the cold. In the dark.
2: This is why, by the way, when we say, please dress for where you're going... It's important. Because if you, let's say, and this happens in Colorado, you are in Stapleton, and it's 50 degrees. Right. It could be 30 degrees in Durango. Right. And literally, it happens all the time, where part of the state is relatively warm, part of the state is super cold. Yes. So, you should wear a jacket. Yes. So, if something happens, like crashing... And I'll discuss how cold it was later. You can... You don't freeze to death. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere.
1: These passengers quickly realized that they were in the middle of nowhere, in the snow, in the dark. And they realized that some of the passengers were severely injured. So, they quickly tried to find their way to any kind of civilization. The ones that were uninjured did end up finding a highway relatively quickly and were able to track down people, wave down people driving by to help them get emergency services to the plane. In the meantime, at Durango, the plane was overdue. Be it that there aren't many flights there, the uh, emergency services that were at the airport are very well aware when a scheduled flight is coming in. And when the airplane goes overdue, They know something happened. So they were immediately aware and they immediately started a search. And they got information very quickly about where the the airplane was, be it that it was in a field, it was very difficult for them to get to the wreckage. They were able to get there and get the survivors out of there. However, they quickly realized that not everybody did survive. Nine of the 17 on board perished.
0: Seven passengers, two crew.
1: Right. Seven passengers, two crew. So half of the half of the people on board basically perished in the accident. It was mostly from the in the forward section of the airplane because the forward section of the airplane had been so severely damaged because it hit ground. They hit the ground first, upside down.
0: One passenger was seriously injured. Six were minorly injured, and one lucky soul was completely uninjured. He was. They, they. were probably at the back of the plane.
1: This was pretty miraculous, to be honest, because of how hard this airplane hit the ground. But there were survivors, and that was important, because everything that I just read to you was everything they had in the report for the story, and that's everything the investigators had to go on to start their investigation. Wasn't much! Everything seemed to be going just fine up until the moment they suddenly hit the ground.
0: This investigation was performed by the NTSB. Ta-da! But their investigation already started off as not easy there were no black boxes aboard this plane, and nor were there required to be. Yeah, because it's a small plane, right? Yep. That
1: so. is why they didn't have much to go on.
0: <laughs> so investigators began with eliminating some things to narrow down possible causes. The first possible cause they looked at was icing, fairly obviously. But... Yeah, it was cold and snowing. and And snowing, yep. And as we mentioned in our recent newsletter, icing degrades airplane performance, so that would kind of explain why they were lower than they thought. But it was quickly determined that this could not have been the case. Icing requires there to be moisture in the air, which would then freeze to the wing. And according to the air disasters episode, this only happens between 32 degrees Fahrenheit down to negative 4 degrees. The reason investigators knew pretty quick that icing wasn't the cause is that the temperature at the altitude they were looking at at the time was negative 24 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Way too cold.
0: To ice. Yeah. Yes. There, was, there would be no moisture in the air that could stick to the wing. So next, investigators looked at the wreckage to see if they could eliminate anything from that. Once they found the propellers of both engines, it was evident that neither engine had failed as both had damage in the direction that they would if both engines were running. And both engines had ingested foliage. Yeah, that's
2: a good way to figure that out.
1: Yep. Yeah. Usually a pretty good sign engines were running. Full of grass and all bent up.
0: Yep. (laughs) I would do it. Well, that was productive. So in lieu of the black boxes, investigators sought out the Denver Air Route Traffic Control, which is based in Longmont, as I said. Based on the radar data and transponder data, investigators were able to put together the descent profile of the accident flight and compared it to the published descent profile from the airport's plate. The published profile, which, for the record, they were not required to comply with per regulations, we'll stay out of that one, was on the 203 radial or the 023 radial of the VOR at Durango Airport and entails being at 10,400 feet when they were 11 nautical miles from the VOR, which air traffic control from Denver did say that they could be at 14,000. So as long as they got down to the descent profile safely, not a big deal. Then the published profile says to descend from there to 9,400 feet when you're seven and a half miles out. Descend to 8,400 feet, five miles out, down to 7,600 feet, three miles out. And then one and a half miles out, descend to the minimum descent altitude or MDA of 7,200 feet. For those of you who are just joining us, MDA is the altitude. You cannot descend below unless you can see the runway. It is only used for non-precision approaches like this one. Mm -hmm. Please refer to a couple of our episodes that happened in a row. I think episodes 21 and 22. The missed approach procedure, which you would perform if you don't see the runway once at minimum descent altitude, would be to climb on the same radial to 8,000 feet, then perform a climbing left turn to 10,600 feet toward the Durango VOR and enter a right turn holding pattern on headings 210 and 030.
1: And the Durango VOR is at the airport in the middle of the field. This isn't always commonplace in any, at any airport, but basically it puts them at a higher altitude above traffic pattern and then puts them in a holding pattern over the, airfo- uh, uh, over the airport.
0: Until they're told what to do.
1: Right. Or they reset themselves for a new approach.
2: Yep. So if they couldn't figure it out for this
0: approach, they could circle around and do the ILS approach. Yes. yes. For example, yes. Now, let's take a look at the accident flight's descent pattern. At 11 miles out, where the published profile says 10,400 feet, they were at more than, or at about 14,000 feet before entering a steep descent at about 3,000 feet per minute, which is three times the published profile. Deep. Yes, yeah. it's very
1: steep for an airliner. Now, it's not like, as a passenger, you probably wouldn't notice, to be fair. You wouldn't. But this was steep. This was very steep for an airliner. If you look at the,
0: the graph we have on the website, it looks steep. This
1: is very steep for an airliner.
0: At about seven miles out from the VOR, they matched the published profile, but then continued their steep descent and impacted terrain at around 7,200 feet, a little more than five miles from the runway. And the final resting place of the aircraft was less than five miles from the VOR, between an altitude of... 7,100 feet and 7,180 feet above sea level. Their descent profile was so steep, and it really made the investigators confused as to why this would happen, so they decided to take a look into the backgrounds of the two pilots. And the story all goes downhill from here. Literally, they were on a downhill slope. The captain had worked for Pioneer Airways as a captain on the Metro 3 until they ceased operations in May 1986, at which time he was hired by Trans-Colorado Airlines two weeks later, but was hired as a first officer. Since he was previously a captain, he got promoted within the month back to captain. Good for him. Thanks. His colleagues described him as highly skilled, very intelligent, and self-confident. But many of the airline's pilots, including the chief pilot, criticized his tendency to rush. He had an affinity for being on time and taxing quickly to maintain a schedule. One dispatcher said that the captain had a reputation of getting a plane from behind schedule to on time by the end of the day, which they were already on track to do. They were initially very behind, but they were already catching up by the time they landed in Denver.
2: You have to be really careful with that, though, because when you're in a rush like that, sometimes you forget things, very important things. You forget. Can put you in a dangerous situation. You forget
1: things or you make decisions that you shouldn't.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I get wanting it to be on time, but if it's between being on time and being safe as a passenger, I'd be like, you know what? I'm okay with being like a half hour off schedule.
1: And so far, you will know, there are two cases that we have mentioned of just because you can doesn't mean you should.
0: The chief pilot for the airline criticized this quality in particular because the captain had a tendency to rush through procedures. Look at that. This explained, however, his decision to use the straight-in approach rather than use the ILS on the other side of the runway as this shaved off 10 minutes.
1: There's one of the just because you can doesn't mean you should.
0: Mm-hmm. Now let's look at his flight history. In February 1983, he crashed a Cessna 182, same kind of plane that Nick's dad has, Near Burlington, Colorado, which injured one passenger. The NTSB, who investigated, at the time determined the probable cause to be the pilot-in-commands... The captains. ...selection of the wrong runway, improper compensation for wind conditions, misjudging distance, and delaying a go-around. So the FAA stepped in and had him re-examined, which he passed a month after the accident. Dude.
1: It's legal. The Yes, this was an unfortunate thing. In other words, he... Landed the wrong direction on the runway. He probably landed with a tailwind. Didn't compensate for the wind. Didn't do anything he was supposed to do. Didn't go around. And ended up crashing the airplane. It probably wasn't that bad of an accident in reality, but passenger got injured. It's unfortunate.
0: Yep. Three years later, in 1986, he was traveling from Houston to Denver with a companion as non-revenue passengers on Continental Airlines and got into it with a customer service agent when their bags were lost while his assumedly wife got into it with another agent. During this debacle, however, he did not identify himself as a non-revenue passenger, nor did he clarify that his companion was not, in fact, his wife, because that would have revealed that he was violating company and industry policy, which says you cannot travel as a non-revenue passenger with someone who is not immediate family.
1: I mean, this is, yeah, this was bad. They got to arguing, and then it come, come to find out later that she's not even supposed to be traveling with him.
0: Also,
2: you're a non-revenue passenger, you didn't have to pay for the flight. And yeah, being were... mean to agents is not yeah. a good way to get your bags back.
1: Being mean mean to your own company about your lost bags. They'll not, find not a, them eventually, yeah.
2: and they'll send them
0: to you. And if they don't, they'll compensate you for your loss.
1: Yes, that's usually how it goes in the industry.
0: Yep, so that was all on his record. Then in 1987, in line with his affinity for rushing to be on time, he violated an agreement with a fueling company and personally refueled a plane in Houston.
1: Just because you can doesn't mean you should.
0: Dude! Then what is up with this guy? The following day, he boarded a passenger who was running late while an engine was running, again violating airline procedure. So
1: that he no! could get on the move quickly.
0: No! No!
1: <laughs> if so, you've never noticed before, when you get on an airplane, there are no engines running, and there won't be until everybody's on board and the doors are shut. That is illegal. legal... Implications. Literally if they don't, they
2: do don't it. even turn on the engines until they're able to push back normally.
1: Yes. Well, to operate in the commercial world and in the airline world, you are there are legal parameters. Implications if you run an in if you're running an engine with moving people, let alone passengers, around the outside of the airplane.
2: Because it you can hurt somebody. Yep. Yes. Someone Obviously. can get hurt. Also You can make
1: them go deaf. There's a lot of implications. There's a lot of legal problems with it that. It just
2: It's surprising. Also, if you're getting to the plane at the point where engines are running, that is your fault. You did not leave early enough. Yes. You didn't leave enough time for yourself.
1: But he waited for them and he had an engine running so that they could get on the move as soon as that guy was in and buckled. Yeah,
0: no, that's not okay. Right. So, checkered history there. Let's go to the first officer. His professional aviation life began as a flight instructor in Colorado in 1974, Until 1980, when, quote, he became a first officer with a commuter airline in Colorado believed to be Pioneer Airways, same airline that the captain started with, Mm -hmm. the airline terminated the first officer about a year later. The FAA's principal operations inspector of the airline stated that the first officer was terminated because he demonstrated a lack of proficiency in his attempt to upgrade to captain. A flight instructor of that airline said that the first officer demonstrated periods of an inaction as the flight regime required changes in the aircraft's configuration or attitude of a change of phase of flight, end quote. So they terminated him because he was trying to get a promotion and didn't pass the test.
1: He wasn't a very good pilot. He just, he wasn't sharp. He couldn't keep up with the airplane and he couldn't keep up with the procedures. And he didn't know when to do certain things. Like he didn't have cues from this he couldn't catch on to cues of certain points of the flight of what to do next yep
2: i don't know to me that just seems like a weird thing to fire someone for well but. if
1: they can't fly the airplane
2: well i i get that but maybe putting him through more training rather than that's kind of him
1: it's kind of what they're getting at is he went through this training and he wasn't getting it so he wasn't very sharp he wasn't catching on
0: Investigators at this point asked why was he hired at Trans-Colorado then, later, even though he was fired from an airline. He didn't list that he worked for Pioneer Airlines. Oh. Because he was only there for less than a year, so he wasn't required to list, I guess he wasn't required to list any kind of employment under a certain amount of time, and, and Trans-Colorado never was aware of any deficiencies when he was hired. Right. In 1985, he moved to Anchorage, Alaska as a charter pilot and flight instructor, but failed a Part 135 proficiency check in the areas of ILS and non-directional beacon approaches. He took it again a month later and passed, but only because it didn't cover instrument approaches, only visual.
1: So he still wouldn't have passed probably the instrument portion. He
0: might might have. He's a good visual pilot. Instruments are scary. I get it. He then returned that same year to Colorado because he was depressed and missed his family. I would miss Colorado, too. I like Colorado. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, can we talk about how he's a flight instructor? Yeah.
1: Most... Why? Most airline pilots were a flight instructor at one point in time because it's a really easy way to get hours and money. Hours and money. You build hours that way because you get to go fly as pilot in command with students. And especially if you're teaching them how to get their private pilot's license, he was good with visual. He was perfectly fine with visual flying. So he's perfectly fine with teaching... Visual. Students how to do visual flying, and even with basic instrument stuff, instrument flying, basic instrument flying, so IFR ratings, he was okay with that. That's fine.
2: I don't know. It just seems kind of weird to me that he couldn't figure out how to how to fly. I don't know an airliner, and he was a so instructor.
0: Nine months after moving back to Colorado, he was hired by Trans Colorado and was trained without incident, but had notes of okay slash weak and weak but improving, etc. He passed another Part 135 proficiency check, this time including ILS and VOR approaches. So, he passed. He's learning. Slowly, but learning. He's getting there. He's getting there. This evidence suggests that on the instrument flight, he may have neglected his instruments and not paid attention to his altimeter, distance, measuring equipment, etc. So, that's kind of what investigators are thinking at this point.
1: It's pretty important because the distance measuring equipment was what they were using for this approach.
0: So, we have two not great history pilots. But they had gone for a while now without incident. Investigators believe that, quote, because the crew flew the approach straight in with a tailwind, mind you.
1: Yes. On their approach, there was a tailwind. Mm -hmm. Not at the airport, but on the approach.
0: They flew the approach at a high descent rate at an excessive ground speed. Further, because they failed to adequately monitor their instruments, they allowed the airplane to descend below the permissible altitude and strike the ground. End quote. But this seemed kind of weird for two relatively experienced pilots. At about this time, one of the surviving passengers came forward to investigators and said that while boarding the flight, she had smelled alcohol on the breath of the first officer.
1: Who was the pilot flying? Oh, no. This is where you start to get mad. But, wait.
0: So, great, everyone's thinking. Well, since we're... In the background check stage still, let's bring up the fact that the first officer had an alcohol-related offense in 1972 and then two alcohol-related driving offenses in 1976 and 1983, all before he moved to Alaska. When asked about it in the FAA medical process, the Airman Medical Examiner noted that they had discussed the DWI and that he, quote, is a convert now, end quote. What the heck does that
2: mean? Uh...
0: He had also just been hired by a new airline and was waiting to leave Trans-Colorado. He had been hired at Rocky Mountain Airlines and had just had his pre-employment physical exam the day before the accident. So he was in a really good mood, according to his friends, because he was like, I'm going to be done with this airline. I have a new job. Just got to wait a couple days. And that on that physical exam before the accident, he said he was free of alcohol use. His friends and family said that he was regularly attending Alcoholics Anonymous or AA meetings.
1: And, so, at, and at AA, if you know anything about it, it is generally pretty heavy on religion because it's how they, a lot of them, connect into getting out of their bad habits. It's how in a they. Makes sense. In a, yes. They use spirituality to do something more and make themselves feel good about. What they do in the world. And it's how they get out of their addiction.
0: And I'm, this is speculation, but based on the fact that he hadn't had any offenses since moving back from Alaska, being away from home made him like realize what he was missing, etc. So he came home and was doing good. He had reformed his ways. All of his, in the air disasters episode, the investigator said that his friends and family were very adamant that he was doing well.
1: And it does seem like it. I think he was on a good
0: path. Just to be safe, investigators did drug tests on both crew members' blood and urine tests. There was no evidence found of alcohol or high levels of drug use in either subject. So investigators determined that the passenger must have just been mistaken. Maybe she smelled some strong cologne or something to that effect.
2: Or she was just imagining it. It's a possibility. Or someone nearby. I mean, this is a small plane. Yeah, we're
1: talking a really small airplane. So,
2: it could have been someone nearby, and it could have she been a smelled it
0: passing the first officer, mm-hmm. you know? So, well, they figure they're in, still doing background checks, so let's continue with that. Investigators found that the captain had previously lived in Florida. Ah. <sighs> And their Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles had records that his driver's license was suspended on November 1st, 1980, before he moved to Colorado, but they did not keep records on why it was suspended.
2: There's a lot of reasons your license can be suspended. Yeah,
1: there are.
0: He then moved to Colorado and failed to tell the Colorado Motor Vehicles Division that his previous license had been suspended. Once in Colorado, who keeps better records, apparently... He had five driving convictions. Oh my god. Oh. Oh no. One for speeding, two for improper yielding of right of way, and two for disobeying a traffic signal or sign. Two of these involved car accidents. Well, the airline was apparently unaware of his previous aircraft accident, car accidents, and driving convictions. Well, you might remember that the captain had the whole mishap with his companion, who was not his wife, but was a lady friend that he was traveling a with. A
2: lady friend.
0: This next part, I'm going to read directly from the report because it's a spill the tea moment that I don't want to mess up. We got some tea that we gonna spill.
1: It's tipping over. Here it
0: goes. (laughs) Oh god! (laughs) So this is all a quote, and I'm so sorry. Section one point one seven five, Human Performance. The captain. The captain had dinner with his parents in the Denver area the night before the accident. They stated that the conversation was normal and that he intended to go to bed early that night in anticipation of the next day's flying activities. He then left his parents' residence for his own residence, also in the Denver area. Trans-Colorado employees who saw the captain before the flight stated that he was friendly and in good spirits, characteristics of his typical behavior. After the accident, a corporate pilot contacted the safety board. He said that on February 24th, while staying at a hotel in the Phoenix, Arizona area, he met a woman who said that she had been the fiancee of the captain of the trans-Colorado airplane involved in the accident near Durango. The woman had the same name as that of the woman who had accompanied the captain as his wife on the trip to Denver, in which the captain's bags were lost. The corporate pilot stated that the woman told him that she and the captain had been living together and that he had flown for a commuter airline based in Denver. Further, he stated that she said, I'm sure glad we were able to bury him right after the accident, because the night before we had done a bag of cocaine, and I was worried that the autopsy would say there were traces of this in his system before he died. What the actual f***? (laughs) (laughs) She admitted to him that she and the captain had used cocaine periodically. The corporate pilot added that he did not consider the woman to have been incoherent or inebriated. However, the corporate pilot, who had been a former drug counselor in the military, characterized her appearance as indicative of a burnout look, typical of someone with a drug problem. The woman gave the corporate pilot her address and phone number. The safety board attempted to contact the woman at the address she had given to the corporate pilot. However, an attorney representing her informed the safety board that the woman had no information that could help the investigation, that she had not been with the captain during the 24-hour period before the accident, and that, in the woman's opinion, the captain was not a habitual user of cocaine, alcohol, or similar drugs. The captain's parents told safety board investigators that they were unaware that their son had ever used cocaine. A close acquaintance of the captain, who had seen him almost daily from early 1984 through mid-1986, saw him again in the summer of 1987. In the interim between 1986 and 1987, she talked to him over the telephone but did not see him. She described him in the 1984 through 1986 period as a very stable person, a nice guy, fun to be with insert quote from hamilton like you could grab a beer with him Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay presuming the report she described his demeanor over a year later as quite different than what it had been earlier he wasn't himself anymore i knew right off that there was some kind of drug problem he acted oh very nervous like he was scared of something he'd look over his shoulder a lot as if there was someone behind him when there wasn't when I was over at his house, every time a car came through, he'd jump up and look out the window. I thought he'd he more weight than I had ever seen him gain before. And he was just real jittery. In the course of their conversation, the close acquaintance reminded him that he had changed his phone number three times. The acquaintance said that when she told the captain that he must be consuming a lot of drugs, he responded, She's like a sickness. It's all a disease and there is no cure. The acquaintance believed that the captain's girlfriend and the use of cocaine were combined together. The acquaintance added that her perception of the captain's behavior had been influenced by the close relationship she had established with him. Because he was a private person, the acquaintance believed that others, such as those who had worked with him, would probably have been unable to detect changes in his behavior resulting from his use of cocaine. So here's the thing with cocaine. Being a person who's had
2: actual... I haven't... I have never done cocaine. I haven't either, but I have... But I know people who
0: have. I have family members who... Me too. ...have recovered and...
1: I don't have any direct connection to any of them. I mean, I don't so, I don't in my family. Don't. I'm not going
0: to name who in my family, but someone very close to me has said that her m- most prominent sign that she had used recently was extreme paranoia.
2: There's that. The other thing that makes me a little bit worried is cocaine is a stimulant, mm-hmm. which means um, and I I have family members who are very very close to me. Again, I I'm not going to name them either they would stay up all night because cocaine causes your heart to beat faster so because it's a stimulant mm-hmm. it's kind of like coffee coffee right. is a stimulant right but on a very 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 not as bad scale right so cocaine can actually cause your heart to stop if it if it's going too fast if you do it too much right and the issue i have with it is is it can cause you to stay up all night and if you don't have it again You know, like, the next night, right, Mm -hmm. you're going to get really tired because you've stayed up for over 24 hours. Ding, 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 ding.
0: So, at this point, investigators were like, hmm, well, he is buried, but we still have the samples we previously tested. So, they sent it to a lab in Sacramento, California, who tested for more sensitive levels. Before, I said there weren't high levels of drugs in their systems that's because that the previous test they had used only looked for overdose levels obviously he was flying so he wasn't overdosed well if he did it the night before
2: right Correct. it wouldn't be as strong in his bloodstream he was
0: flying all day right so in the new test they did find traces of cocaine in his system as well as metabolic waste i guess Metabolic remnants of cocaine, so proof that it's been a while since he's used. He didn't just like snort a line and then jump on the plane.
2: Well, and that would be really hard to do to be fair.
1: I mean yes, but. but but yes, importantly, he didn't do it right before this flight or anything, but it was still in his system. he was still his system was still breaking it down, so he was coming down off of this
0: high, which I'll get into a little bit, and I used the term snort because the report did, the technical term is intranasally. Yes. It is the most effective system of delivery of cocaine other than intravenously, which no one ever does. Yeah. So there's some cocaine facts, I guess. So as we said, cocaine is a stimulant. Cocaine is also a drug where the effects are dependent on usage. Based on the reports on his drug use, it seems that the captain was not a novice cocaine user. The more you use, the worse the withdrawal effects. Withdrawal symptoms can start as soon as 90 minutes after the last dose and last for days. And it's estimated that his last dose was between 12 and 18 hours before the flight. Symptoms that can impair pilot performance include mood alteration and degradation, craving, and post-cocaine-induced fatigue. Those were the ones listed in the report. The main symptoms listed in the report, and that I know from those in my life who have recovered from cocaine addiction are more related to sleep deprivation. That's what I was going to say. Yep. It's a stimulant. It keeps you up and alert. According to a representative from the DEA who helped with this investigation, it is likely that the captain did not sleep most of the night before the flight. Investigators concluded that the captain's use of cocaine caused insomnia and therefore impaired his abilities to fly and monitor the first officer's flying, though they cannot conclude the extent of the impairment and its effect on his piloting and perception skills. But he was fatigued. He was fatigued, not paying attention to the instruments, not he, monitoring well, the flight. I mean, he was in withdrawal,
2: right? Absolutely. If you've ever seen someone, or if you have, I mean, I don't know. I don't know you friends. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't but judge you. I can't we, say I've really ever.
2: I've what? never had withdrawal symptoms before, no. but I've seen it. And you get shaky, you get sweaty, you start... Right you know
0: you can't focus because your body's craving whatever you're not having mm-hmm. the main ones that i've noticed in the family members very close to me were irritability yeah and That's fair. just being tired because you
2: don't sleep because um when you're in withdrawal you're a full out
0: dick also the paranoia <laughs> is incredibly real yeah that my family members who had used were doing so very illegally and got very paranoid. Like they bought binoculars and were watching out their house, suspecting like every one of their neighbor's cars was a police car. Eventually one, one day was so. Right. You know, sometimes the paranoia.
2: It ain't wrong. (laughs) It ain't wrong.
1: Yeah. But But sometimes you
2: shouldn't be doing something that causes you to have paranoia. But
1: sometimes you're so paranoid. Everybody else becomes paranoid about your paranoia. And then it's a self fulfilling prophecy.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so really, the I have two no things connection. I relate to is people being full out dicks. Me it's, too. <laughs> it's true. They you get super irritable. Shakes are real. Sweats mm-hmm. are real. Paranoia. Par, I didn't. We didn't have paranoia. That's fair. But I I had not experienced them having paranoia. But the shakes and the sweats and the and the uh, being a huge dick thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and being tired all the time. Sure. Because they don't sleep, and then they don't have the thing that's causing them to stay up. So then they're tired all the time. Well,
0: and there are FAA regulations that you need a certain amount of sleep for a reason. Yes. The effects Of of fatigue severely inhibit your ability to fly and or monitor someone else flying. So being irritable
2: and being fatigued, not a great idea to be on a flight right after all of that. Right,
1: so now let's talk about it. They chose the way more complicated of the two approaches for the pilot monitoring, which was the captain, who was in withdrawal. So, on an ILS approach, it's pretty simple. You set up your navigation radio to the right frequency... And then you capture the glide slope and follow it in a straight line down to the runway. He
0: probably would have been fine.
1: That would have been fine. That's
0: why I'm like, why didn't they just do the ILS approach? Because Because I want to catch up, and I want to be on time. This was faster.
1: This was faster, but they were flying in the dark, through the clouds, over the mountains, with winds.
2: In the snow, with the fog.
1: In the snow, uphill both ways, in the snow, bare feet. (laughs) (laughs) Six miles. Okay. So... (laughs) In any case, so they're doing all of this, and this descent requires a series of steps. And these series of steps require a lot of focus. You have to know distances, altitudes, and you have to be paying very close attention to the VOR, the exact tracks, the DME, your, D- your distance measuring equipment, so you know how far you are from that VOR. That tells you when you're supposed to do specific steps down to the runway. This requires an enormous amount of focus from both pilots. Because you also need to perform all your other normal procedures, and you need to keep an eye out for the airport. Make sure that you can visually see it. It wasn't until they are about on the ground that they realized they didn't have the airport in sight. Because they were way too low.
0: Nah. <laughs> and if you look at the descent profile that we have on the website, you actually can see a dotted line toward where the terrain is on the graph. And it says, indefinite ceiling at Durango, 7,300 feet MSL. That is where the clouds stopped. And so you can almost picture, just looking at this graph, their moment of, oh, shit! there's the ground. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, they probably had that fast to they realize... They had 100 feet. Right. They had that fast to realize, as they popped out of the clouds, there was the ground. So-
0: and they uh, throttle levers, I believe, were advanced.
1: Full. Yes, they were thrown to full. Passengers actually confirmed that the throttles went to full throttle after the the initial impact.
2: Because they, uh, they were trying to do a go-around. It was too late.
1: Way too late. Right?
2: When you hit terrain, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. Depending on where you are, okay? Sometimes you, you bounce and you go, okay, bye! That was not what happened here. No,
0: because they lost part of their left wing. Yeah.
1: Right. Which the passengers actually reported that they thought they just had a really hard landing on that impact. I'm like, are you kidding me? You lost a wing. It was a little more than a heavy impact. The airplane shattered.
0: Hard landing. Hard landing. It's a technical term. It
1: is. (laughs) In any case, so they, they didn't have any time to react to this, but they were not... He was clearly not paying attention. Now, you say, okay, but the... The first officer was the pilot flying, so it's his job to follow that profile. Yes, but he needs the captain's coordination to follow this procedure. And you might remember that the first officer also has a checkered history with instrument approaches. Yeah,
0: he ain't great. He's getting better, but he ain't
1: up there. This being a very complicated instrument, non-precision, I might add, meaning it is not precise, that is kind of a big misnomer because it requires you to have a lot more attention to detail. Yes, it doesn't put you on a perfect glide slope, but it requires you to follow this exact series of steps in order to go down. Now, yes, the requirement, the Federal Aviation Regulation at the time did not require them to follow these steps exactly. But this is another one of those cases of just because you don't have to doesn't mean you shouldn't.
2: Well, basically, everything comes out to the first officer was set up for failure right when he got on that plane with the with the captain because and here's why i say that they're in the dark they're in the snow they can't see etc the whole point of having two people in the cockpit mm-hmm. is so one person can help figure out where everything needs to be while the other person's flying the airplane right and we've said this before most crashes happen on takeoff or approach right okay so this was on approach you're getting closer to the ground the first officer can't just open a map or open... This is also 1980s, right? Right. We don't have visual cockpit displays like we do now. Right. And this we is also this don't a, metro, yeah. this, this er, is a metro... have Yeah. And this is a metroliner, too. This
1: airplane, and even to this day, these airplanes, these metro liners, are still just steam gauge hogs. I mean, they have just hundreds of little steam gauges all across the panel. Trying to find information in this airplane is a tough thing. And... Can a
0: Metroliner do the GPS approach now?
1: Yeah, they have GPSs. It's just, yeah, it's it's complicated. So this
0: airport now has, from this direction, has RNAV approaches, which is GPS. There's no VOR DME approach anymore.
1: Right. It's not that you couldn't do a VOR DME approach, but it is not an official plate anymore because they have more precise approaches. And RNAV is a non-precision approach. But... They have more precise approaches that would keep you from ending up in a bad spot.
2: Well, and he can't just open this descent profile while he's flying. That is the job of the person who isn't flying the aircraft. Right. That would be the captain. And the captain is withdrawing and not paying attention. And right. so he was set up for failure when they
0: decided to do this instead of taking the ILS approach. Yes, Exactly. You could argue that the only reason they made it to this flight is because all of his other flights that day were visual, and he and the first officer was a good visual pilot. Right.
1: Right. So things were going well most of the day, up until this point, where they were put in a really tough situation.
0: The The tragic thing that I realized is this first officer, he was doing everything right. He was going to meetings. He was cleaning up his life. He was getting his proficiency checks in. And he was trying.
1: He was trying. And, and he yeah.
0: was trying to fly the aircraft. And his death was not the fault of his own substance misuse. No. It was the fault of the guy sitting to his left. Yep. Which is why you shouldn't be
2: using at all. Right. If you're going to be flying an airplane at all.
1: I mean it's
0: we'll get into that. Federally too. illegal. Yes. But yes. <laughs> it is it's it was probably federally illegal at this time. Yeah. So But this is also the eighties, which my dad mentioned. Not just the eighties, but the eighties in Colorado, which apparently cocaine was a really big deal at the time. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm taking his word for it on this one. All right. We're going to take a little breakity
2: break? Yep.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: There are not very many findings or recommendations within this report.
0: This was a blessedly short report.
1: It actually was. So, be it what it is, these are 11 very straightforward findings from the report verbatim. Number one, the airplane was properly maintained for flight.
2: Thank you. (laughs) The the plane was not the problem here.
1: Right, which leads into number two. They found that there was no evidence of pre-existing damage to the airplane system, structure, or power plants that could have contributed to the accident. Right. The airplane wasn't the issue. But, number three, the one that we normally skip over. But in this case, we won't. Because they found that the captain was medically unqualified to serve as a crew member on the flight due to his use of cocaine before the accident.
0: Yep. He was not properly qualified or certificated.
2: Right. He should not have been flying on this flight.
1: Right. They found that the captain falsified his application for an airman's medical certificate due to his failure to cite his previous traffic convictions. Had he which, done that.
2: by the way, is a huge red flag. Yes. When Five you can't, tickets? When you can't drive a car properly, why would we let you fly an airplane? <laughs> yeah.
1: They found that the flight encountered a 10 to 15 knot tailwind while flying most of the VOR DME approach to runway 20 at Durango.
2: It was pushing them.
1: It was pushing them. Which can cause them to lose altitude extremely quickly. And if you're not paying attention...
2: It can. It it's can go It's very, boom. very
1: dangerous. It can go boom. So this crash. was definitely. I would say this was a contributing factor, and that's why they put that in there. But they couldn't prove it. Why? Really important. No data.
2: Yeah. No black No boxes. FDR. No CVR.
1: Right. That's also why they don't know what the crew was talking about. They don't know how distracted the captain was.
2: Because they don't. They don't have any information. But
1: they have to assume that both crew members were highly distracted at this point, because
2: obviously not looking place. at their altitude.
1: Yep. They found that the flight crew flew the VOR DME approach to runway 20 at Durango straight in from an altitude and a speed too high to achieve a stabilized approach. So when they started, their profile was way above.
2: Well, they were too high. They were going too fast.
1: So arguably, they may have been trying to correct for this, but then they passed it.
2: Yeah, by hitting the ground. (laughs) Yes. Sorry, that's not funny. This was a dangerous,
1: dangerous drop, though.
2: Yes. As we said, it's steep. If you look at the profile we have on the website, it looks steep.
1: So it may be that they were trying to get down to the the steps from where they were because they were set up with a high approach. But in doing so, at some point they became distracted, lost track of the altitude, and missed their level off.
0: And to be clear, when we say steep, it was three times as steep as the published descent profile. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going we're going a little sleep no, it was like no, really.
1: No, they were really steep. They found that the first officer was at the controls of TransColorado 2286. We knew that. They found that the first officer's record prior to his employment with TransColorado and during his training with the company indicated deficiencies in performing instrument procedures. Really important when you're flying an instrument approach.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, should have circled around to the ILS, dude. Would have been so much easier. Yes, not a great... Er, easier. It's, it's yes, easier. English.
1: <laughs> not great to not know your instrument approaches, but at least that one might have had a better chance I mean, of success. The airplane
2: just clicks onto the frequency and helps you get down to the runway. It I really I feel does. like that's so much easier than trying to fly it down to the runway yourself.
1: Yes. Generally, in airplanes like this, you still have to manually fly the glide slope. It won't do it for you. The autopilot, nowadays they will. But... That said, it's far more precise. So at least you have this target to follow on your on your dashboard. Literally, it just you follow the target. If you're left or right of it, you correct for that. If you're up, if you're above or below that, you correct for that, and you just follow the target all the way to the ground. It brings you to a very, very high accuracy within very few feet of where you need to land. As opposed to a VOR VOR DME, just brings you all the way to MDA. Then from there, you have to visually fly it to the ground. But it still has these really high, this really high amount of workload. They found that the captain's performance was degraded due to the adverse effects of his use of cocaine before the accident.
2: He was in withdrawal.
1: Yep. They found that air traffic control did not contribute to the accident. That's important. They, they couldn't,
2: couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah, they couldn't
1: see him. And they couldn't do anything about it if they wanted to because they didn't have necessarily the plate or understand the actual approach procedures for this airplane, they assumed that they were following the instructions given and that they were going to do this correctly. Well, and
2: they said that, yeah, we got you. We know what we're doing. Thanks.
0: Also, on the descent profile that we have on the website, you can see where radar service was terminated. Yeah. So you can see how early on in their descent that happened. Yeah. Do you see it?
2: Yes. I got it. Okay, It's right there. I see it.
1: So now for the last finding, which is something we didn't talk about, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about
2: now.
0: It's a big deal.
1: Because it's a big deal. There's one key thing that didn't happen, and if you, some of you are probably thinking, well, what the heck? How did nothing tell them they were going to hit
2: the ground? <gasps> oh! <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Duh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where's this going? I, I'm dumb. It's fine.
1: Miranda just had an aha moment.
2: I did have an aha moment.
1: We're so focused on the crew in this one. I feel like we did a pretty good job of keeping you trained on that.
2: I was really proud of that. <laughs> I even knew that came from this and I just it just yes. went straight over my head. This is
1: by far and away probably the most, not necessarily, but one of the most important things that came from this. They found that a ground proximity warning device probably would have alerted the crew to the airplane's increasing proximity to terrain and may have prevented the accident.
0: GPWS! Yes, Investigators found specifically that it would have sounded 23 seconds before impact.
1: So they would have had the chance to correct. And they probably would have, because even if you're in withdrawal, at least you have some amount of attention, and if that thing's going off, then you're going towards something.
2: Well,
0: and the first officer was the one flying, so he would have been like, oh...
1: Shit. yeah
0: now JK. that's that's not to say that ground proximity warning systems didn't already exist at the time they did
1: but not in this level
0: not on this size of plane right they were not being mandated to be implemented they were only beginning to be implemented into bigger aircraft it was after this that people were like you know we've had a lot of sea accidents this one's really bad And investigators specifically said that it would have saved everyone on board so, let's make it a bigger deal about it, and they did. Yeah, right. Twenty-three seconds is a lot of time, and we've covered GPWS so many times before. Yes, saying that we would cover this
2: crash. Look, yep. here we look, are. We here, did it. ta-da!
1: So that's a huge thing. We'll cover more of this in a minute. Let's get through the probable cause and the whole three recommendations that came <laughs> out of this, which actually don't cover two of the most important things. The finding did that last finding did, but the recommendations don't. But there are several things that were really important about this that did change after this.
0: Yes. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the first officers flying and the captain's ineffective monitoring of an unstabilized approach, which resulted in an ascent below the published descent profile. Contributing to the accident was the degradation of the captain's performance resulting from his use of cocaine before the accident. Yeah. So don't use cocaine?
2: before right. you fly somewhere. Or anytime. Or at all. Right. But if you're going to do it,
0: don't do it if you're going to fly a plane. Also, in, in my cocaine research that I had to do If today, you want
1: to call it that.
0: Also, if you are suffering from cocaine misuse, don't go cold turkey. That's really dangerous. Don't do that. Your heart can stop. Go Literally. Get, go get professional help. They will help you get off of it safely without dying. If you want to learn more about Misuse.
2: check out the choose your struggle podcast we are which, not getting paid for this no advertisement. But, <laughs> no we're not but we did a couple advertisements for him you know it
0: it talks about something that if you need help there are ways to get help and there are ways to get help that don't necessarily require you to get prosecuted if that is your biggest fear which i know it is for a lot
2: Moving on.
1: (laughs) So, in that probable cause, you will note that the cocaine use was the contributing factor. It was the last part of the probable cause. And that's because, let's be clear, they couldn't prove in any way whatsoever how that actually affected the performance on this flight.
0: No, they could not determine the extent to the degradation of performance. Right. Exactly. They could just assume.
1: So, they knew that he was pilot monitoring, and clearly...
0: He wasn't wasn't monitoring monitoring. well.
1: So they know that there was some extent, but they don't know to what extent, except that it caused them to miss their level off.
0: Well, and then they also said that they couldn't even judge properly based on the cocaine levels in his system at the time of the test, because so much time had passed that the urine that they were using also helps break down cocaine. Right. So... It could have been way worse. Yeah. At the point where...
1: They really don't know. They were
0: on flight. But around the time of this report was also when they were like, they had just really started doing research into cocaine use and metabolic rates and stuff like that. So realistically, this report at the time could not give proper evaluation to his state. Right. For a multitude of reasons.
1: Right. So let's go through these three recommendations really quick, and then we'll talk a little bit more about things that changed from this accident. So, the NTSB found and recommended to the Federal Aviation, they recommended informing principal operations inspectors of the United States standard for terminal instrument procedures and require them to personally observe an operator's conduct of a special approach before they give the authorization to fly the approach. So, this is kind of a vague way of putting, they should have been trained on this approach. And before they should have. They
2: decided to do this before
1: approach. both these pilots were tried to do this approach. Right, they should have both been observed doing this approach, so that they knew they could be they could do this approach on their own.
2: So this kind of ties in, and some of you have not been able to listen to this, and that's okay. I did Korean Airlines Flight Eight Hundred One several months back on a Miranda Sode, and the same similar to this, not cocaine or anything like that, but. Mm-hmm. Being trained on an approach that has to do with the VOR DME, Mm -hmm. very important because it's different in certain areas and you have to follow a chart to tell you what you need to be at and what level offs you need to be at to get down to the runway. Right, exactly. And if you're not following that and you don't know what you're doing, you can crash. Yep. And look what happened.
1: Yep. They recommended providing guidance to operators of scheduled revenue passenger service to assist them in in obtaining relevant information from previous employers about the piloting skills and abilities of prospective pilots.
2: So making sure that they don't, they weren't terminated from being a pilot? Yeah, have better
0: background checks.
1: Yes, we'll get into background checks in a minute. Background checks were huge. They They already existed, but not at this level.
0: Also note that was most of my section was talking about their background.
1: Right. That's why. Background checks. Background
0: checks. checks. Muy importante.
1: And then a very important one. They recommended distributing and periodically updating, as needed, the Department of Transportation's study, data available on the impact of drug use on transportation safety, to all aviation medical examiners. In addition, information on the detection of drug use should be disseminated to aviation medical examiners. So, those are the three recommendations. But... There's really big key things that actually changed after this that aren't mentioned here.
0: So the big one that we've referenced a lot is they increase the frequency of drug tests among pilots. And you can tell the effects of that by you've never heard of this happening ever again.
1: Yeah, basically. The drug testing on pilots is very commonplace now. They do it all the time. There's also monitoring, and now you get the medicals that you are required to have for flying require drug tests at this level, and they require a lot more frequency and a lot of scrutinizing the pilot's actual physical shape,
2: which and is medical imp- shape important because yes. if you, if you're not in good enough physical shape or you're using drugs or alcohol, you could potentially be a danger to yourself and everyone on board of your aircraft,
1: right? So drug testing is a big one. Another one, background checks. Yeah. They weren't doing background checks very well, and I mean, it wasn't just the FAA in this case. The captain got a driver's license in Colorado after his was suspended in Florida, which shouldn't have happened.
0: No. No.
1: And then his yeah, and then he had a really bad driving record in Colorado. So
0: he was that he was the transplant that moved here and didn't know how to drive. And then that
1: driving record also wasn't given to the FAA somehow. Somehow. Or the medical examiner. And he was allowed to fly.
0: Also, so. Pas- passengers. Going back to the fact that he had his license suspended in Florida, I think it's fairly obvious that um he lost it because he couldn't drive well. Right. Maybe because of drug use. I don't know. But he couldn't drive well here. I imagine he probably didn't drive well there.
1: Right. So background checks is another one. Huge one. Black boxes on airplanes with 10 or more seats. Oh, yeah.
0: That one's a big deal. And this specifically, so this was not a Part 121 operation. This was not a commercial service. No,
1: this was a charter operation or a...
0: Regional uh, carrier. Commuter. This was a commuter. Commuter is the term. They
1: were Part 135.
0: And so they, in addition to Part 121 operators, Part 135 operators got looped into that mandate as well. Yes. Because it's important when you have passengers
2: on board. It's a big deal. It's important to know if there is an accident, why that happened, why loss of life happened. Right. Because, you know, people want closure. People want to know what happened. Investigators want to know what happened, so it doesn't happen again.
1: Thankfully, in this accident, they had just enough information going around and going around the fact that they didn't have black boxes that they were able to determine roughly what happened. But there are so many questions they never got to answer and so many things that they don't know and never will know, that, unfortunately, they can't give the perfect answer to the families.
0: Yeah. To this day, the quest to expand use of black boxes still continues. Especially since last year's accident with Kobe Bryant, now there's a huge push to have black boxes mandated in helicopters. Yeah. Because they don't know what happened in that crash, because there were no black boxes.
1: Right. Last big change. GPWS.
0: Yeah. Ground proximity
2: warning system is on these airplanes specifically? Yes. on smaller airplanes.
1: Yes. GPWS now can go all the way down to the smallest of airplanes because we have the
0: both ground proximity warning system and TAS.
1: Yes, you have TAS and WAS.
0: So, TAS is the terrain avoidance and warning system and it's put into smaller planes like general aviation planes.
1: Yeah. TAS is really common
0: Wide Area Augmentation System there is an air navigation aid developed by the FAA to augment the global positioning system with the goal of improving its accuracy, integrity, and availability.
1: So what that really does is more the accuracy of GPS so that things like TOS and GPWS really can help them. Because if it wasn't that accurate, i.e. some of the older GPS systems that were installed on these metros, for example, weren't highly accurate. They couldn't give you, like within exact location, within feet, at any given second. They were kind of like a rotating beacon, like, I'm here, now I'm over here, now I'm way over there, now I'm way over there. And in those span, in that little span of time, you could be popping out of the clouds and 100 feet from the ground. So, GPWS was huge, and going into airplanes like this, and now the fact that it can go all the way down to the general aviation level, what with ADS-B and all these things that allow... The planes to communicate with one another and have a better understanding of where they are in space makes these airplanes very smart. And it keeps pilots from getting themselves into situations like this.
2: Where they get to a point where they can't recover from. I mean, if they had that extra 23 seconds, they probably would have been fine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They would have called to go around and gone around.
2: And probably went to the other runway with the ils which i would have done to begin with as i keep saying because it's a smarter decision but but you're not a pilot yes
0: but (laughs) it still doesn't mean it wasn't the smarter decision right so now uh we want to address a listener question that we received from i believe his name was lance yes lance Okay, so we're going to take this in baby steps. We're also not going to go through all of the parts of this question because it is long and extensive, and we, but we address most of it. So the first part is cost is the reason genuine imitation parts are used on planes. For the official parts, what is the markup from the manufacturer-distributor? We all know everything in aviation is expensive. The lessons, the airplanes themselves, fuel, maintenance, etc., What would it take to bring the parts and maintenance costs down so that flying might come down a bit, which might increase the number of people getting involved?
1: So this is kind of, this is still a loaded question. You still have to be very careful with these kinds of things. So it is difficult to change the cost of aviation. And I and everybody else in aviation really can agree. It is expensive and it is getting more expensive all the time. That makes it very difficult to get into aviation. Believe me, I know. I would love to be flying, but I don't have the money. That said, there is a cost to safety when you take away money from aviation. It takes a lot of money to certify parts and make parts and maintain the airplane. So it it's expensive. Flying is going to be expensive, unfortunately. And it would I would love to have the right answer for how to make it cheaper. But if they had that answer... Somebody it would already
2: th- be cheaper. Somebody yeah. would
1: already have done it. And that's the truth because it frustrates a lot of people, of course. There are a lot there's a lot of work being done now to make electric airplanes which will require a lot less maintenance. It doesn't necessarily mean that the airplane will be cheaper because there's a whole level of safety that comes to developing new technology. And so they'll be expensive initially, but the operating cost will be lower. And that is a big benefit because that's the other big expense in aviation, right? It's not just safety of maintaining the airplane and the equipment on it. It's the expense of operating the airplane. How much does it cost an hour in fuel and in you know the actual overall de- degradation of the airplane over time? Well, airplanes, electric airplanes would obviously circumvent a lot of the things that come with gas-powered engines, things like that. So in time, it will become cheaper— when we're able to develop those technologies. But there's still always going to be an expense related to safety. Because we have to keep aviation safe. That's just the truth. That's
2: the entirety of this podcast. Yes. And by the way, if you haven't figured this out, this question was referred to to the partner episode that we did a few weeks ago with the counterfeit parts and things. Imitation parts, as we said on there, are cheaper because they're not as safe. (laughs) Right. So... Like Nick said, safety is important. Safety is how people don't die. Right.
0: Now, one part of aviation that is really expensive, that I wouldn't say is needlessly so, but I wish could change, is lessons. I say this particularly because the one thing holding Nick back from getting his private pilot's license is that it's really expensive. I wish, this is like ideal universe, that somehow pilot lessons were covered by the Department of Education in that you could get scholarships and things like that more readily the way you can for college. Right. The amount of time you spend on a pi- private pilot's license, like getting to the point where you can fly for an airline, is the equivalent in time and money of getting a degree.
1: Easily, if not a little bit more, depending on how you go. And yes, it's extremely expensive. Along the way, I mean, there's always, you know the The cost of the instructor is always going to be a little bit high because those people worked hard to get to where they are. And that's and how they, they're making their money. That's how they're making their money. That's how they make ends meet. They only meet with students for two, three hours at a time, say, and they need to make those two, three hours worth their time to make a living.
2: Well, and it's not just that. It's also renting the airplane, getting the, the fuel. fuel for the airplane, et cetera. Right. You know, everything is encompassed into that with lessons, right? You're renting an exactly. airplane, you're paying for gas, you're paying for the instructor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So,
0: I'm not necessarily saying that those aspects should be cheaper because those are funding important things. Just getting uh, a Financial way to aid. fund, yeah, yes. a way to
2: fund those things, sorry, I keep hitting my mic. Funding those things so that they're
0: people can more readily do it, to yes. more readily access such a career path because right now like For me, getting a scholarship to college was as easy as, like, logging into the university portal and submitting a bunch of applications. Doing that for a pilot's license, you have to know someone. Generally,
1: yes. There are a lot of scholarships out there if you go search for them, but they're still not easily available, and there aren't enough of them. Yeah. And, that you know, most of them are pretty low. Like, you know, you get $1,000, $2,000 scholarships. Okay, yes, that pays for quite a bit. Don't get me wrong. Anything will help. Anything will help. But the cost of aviation, just to get all the way to the point of actually being able to do your, get your, your actual airline transport rating is astronomical. I mean, you were going to be tens of thousands of dollars in the hole.
2: I asked Brendan, and I won't say a specific number because I Mm -hmm. actually don't know how much he's actually spent
1: i don't know the exact number but But, i know roughly what he's yeah
2: so i asked him how much in the past six months because it's been about six months or so Mm -hmm. since you started this have you spent to get your private pilot's license and he told me around ten thousand dollars that is ridiculous the only reason that is more than an entire semester at metro that's
0: about a year at CU Denver for me when I was there, that is.
1: Right. but And that's just to get your very, very basic rating.
0: And he couldn't get financial help with that. The only reason that Brendan could afford that is because he lives at home.
1: Yeah, he saved up the money to do it.
0: And, and he, good. And he works as a teacher, so he also, like, he drove Uber Eats. He did all of this stuff just to make that six months possible. And once he gets his license, I don't, like, maintaining that kind of flight time is hard.
1: It is. At that point, you won't have to pay for an instructor, but you still have to rent the airplane, which is expensive. We, You know, him and I were talking about this recently, and in doing uh, trips we want to do eventually, and he was talking about, okay, taking the airplane for one overnight to we picked a destination, wasn't terribly far away, but it was far enough away, so the cost of fuel, and the cost of overnight, and the cost of rent the airplane for two days, say... And the whole thing works out to about $600.
2: That's ridiculous.
1: That's a lot of money.
2: That's so much money.
1: That's... You burn $600 in just... And it's not that it wouldn't be a good experience or anything. But in order to go and actually, like, go travel more often, it's this is just wildly expensive. But there's, again, a lot of reasons behind that. And a lot of it is safety. You want that airplane to be maintained correctly. So the cost of maintaining that airplane is going to be high. And that's just kind of how it is in aviation. It's There's no precise answer for this. I wish I could give a more concise answer, but that's how it's always been.
0: Yep. So the second part of this question that we're going to read... Is What is your opinion of airline pilots who learn via the military, which our taxes pay for, then go on to those fairly lucrative careers in the airlines? It might not seem as relevant in the COVID times, but it has been in the recent past and might be again in the future. So before you answer, because
2: I have an answer to this, is those people who go into the military, specifically the Air Force, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes the Navy, too.
1: Mm -hmm. A lot of times. They
2: have to go through training. They have to go through months and months and months of growing, growing training, and they're giving up their time and and their lives to protect our country, and I fully support um, the fact that people are doing that voluntarily, and if they want to learn how to fly an
0: airplane while doing that, go for it. And you're not going to spend your entire life in the military, so you might as well put those skills to use.
2: Well, and they're doing things like reconnaissance flights. And things like that. Things we don't know about because the general public doesn't know about them. Doesn't need to know. And if they're willing to do that for the safety of our country, if they're willing to do that, and I'm I'm saying this very honestly because I've had people who were in the Air Force and the Navy. I mean, it doesn't bother me. Thank you for your service. Yes, thank you very much. Also, they also have to get ratings and stuff after they get out of the military to be a commercial pilot. They can't just go from being a fighter pilot to a commercial pilot.
1: No, there's still a lot of work involved, and I think a lot of people don't... They kind of overlook that, but there's a lot of work involved with them doing that. And So before I continue on with this answer, there's a few things to know with this. You're you're asking for an opinion, and that's great. Just know that that means there's no factual answer, and also this is a little pointed. So... We're being cautious, because there is a fine line here between a factual answer and an opinion.
2: Being a taxpayer and understanding this, my opinion is, I don't mind it. I don't. I would not be
0: willing to do this at all. I also know (laughs) that the phrase, fairly lucrative career, you doesn't start out that way. When you start at an airline, you're not making anything. Right. And you don't go straight to captain after being out of the Air Force. You have to build your way up. You have to get your ratings. You don't even get to go to a main airline where the money is at. You start regional, if that. Right. Charter.
1: And I know that these people go into the Air Force and they don't have to pay for their training, but you have to understand that they are paying for it in some way. It may not be through money, but there are a lot of other ways that they pay having to go through this training in aviation when they're in the military. They, they pay, could die. Yeah, they pay with their lives. They pay with their time. They pay with a lot of other ways. I mean, there's there's a lot that goes into this. They spend a lot of time training. And so this is, again, a little bit of a pointed question, and so we're not going to go a whole lot deeper than that. Nope. the The taxpayer part of this, that's always been a big gray area, and... A big hot topic for many, many years. And I understand that. And there's still no right answer for that necessarily either. So there's a need and a want, and they are two different things in the Air Force. And there's a need for pilots, so they're going to have to do it anyways. And there's a lot of them that go in there wanting to do it. And it's good for them, so it's a good way to learn. And then eventually they're going to be out of the Air Force without a job, but they have now the skill to do this thing. And it's still going to take a lot of their time and money eventually to get to the point where they could be in the airlines. So it's, this, is a, this is a tough topic, and we'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah. But thank you for listening, and thank you for the question anyways. We do appreciate it.
2: We really do. And if, again, if anyone else has a question, we will address your question. It might take us
0: some time since we record ahead of schedule. Yeah. Sorry. So...
2: Yeah, and it depends on how much research and stuff we have to do for the weeks that we have to record. But, again, we, all, we always appreciate a question, period. And it doesn't have to be aviation-related, although we love aviation-related questions. It can be about us, it can be about podcasting, it can be about anything, really. We'll answer it for you. Yeah. It's probably easier to answer a personal question than a question <laughs> that requires us to look some stuff up. But For
0: example, my favorite color is teal. And mine is purple. Mine is red. Now you know, and that's the color of our XLR cables to yep. our microphones. Yep. Yep.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right. So that was Trans Colorado.
1: Yep.
2: Airlines flight twenty two eighty six. I knew <laughs> it started with two. Gonna, ah, Damn
1: it! I was going to try to let her get it. It's fine. Twenty two eighty six.
2: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more or have more content. Per week, you can check out the Patreon page. Thank you for all the patrons that we've had so far. Those of you who keep contributing to us, we highly appreciate you. Yeah, and it helps keep this podcast growing. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. And if you want more stuff, but you don't want to be a patron, we get it. Hard times, COVID. Yes, understandable. Check out the newsletter. You can subscribe on the website. You can also, you know, send us listener stories and questions, uh, and we'll put those in an episode for you as well.
0: I believe that this is the last week we are accepting submissions for the January aviation stories, which is the your first aviation experiences. That's just the theme. You could submit any story you want. We'll read it. Right. So we already have five
2: from David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of
1: firsts and I can't wait to hear it.
2: Yeah, it's super exciting. But if you have a first you'd like to share with us or just a story in general you'd like to share with us, that information and form is also on the website. Again, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate everyone every week. We've gotten more listenership recently. It makes us feel really good. Thank you. And we will catch you all next week. Stay safe, stay healthy. Keep your speed up.